0: Hi, I'm Len Epp from LeanPub, and in this episode of the Front Matter podcast, I'll be interviewing Mark Nyhoff. Based in Bergen in Norway, Mark is the founder of Smokkassen, a clothing subscription service for parents of small children that selects and delivers high-quality, curated clothing to parents periodically as their children grow. It's like having a personal shopper for your kids. Mark is the author of a couple of Lean Pub books, including CQRS, the example, and Solid, Software Development is Not a Jenga Game, and Learning Erlang by Example. In this interview, we're going to talk about Mark's background and career, professional interests, his books, and at the end, we'll talk a little bit about his experience self-publishing. So thank you, Mark, for being on the Front Matter podcast.
1: Yeah, thank you for having me. It's a uh... Interesting.
0: Yeah, it's uh, and and thank you for taking <laughs> some time out of out of out of your evening in Norway. Um, I always like to start these interviews by asking people about their origin story and you know, how they came to their careers. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about where you grew up and how you first became interested in in programming and technology generally?
1: Um, I grew up in uh, in Holland, and uh, my dad was uh, working in IT with Wang uh, computers. Uh, for some um, uh, car paint uh, company, and uh, I guess uh, that sort of grew on me. I've never been a big hacker or something, uh, but having computers around was uh, not on, uh, yeah was natural for me. And when it t- became time to decide what I wanted to become, uh, it was a choice between uh, programming or architecture. Uh, both of these have. Um, Creativity in in the heart of it, and it became programming. So that's uh, that's shortly how I got started.
0: And one, uh, one, one question I like to ask people uh, is: uh, Did you did you study computer science formally at at university or college?
1: I, I have a um, it's, you could call it a bachelor level of uh, computer science. Yes, and if you so was- not not a high degree.
0: And if you were starting out now with the intention of becoming a software engineer, would you would you would you study computer science formally again, or would you would you choose a, a more independent path? This is something I always like to ask people.
1: I think that's a very difficult question because I don't know what would have happened if I would have done uh, the other thing. Uh, but but I think. Uh, I'm I'm happy with what I got. Uh, There's some companies that I can't apply because they uh, want a quote-unquote higher standard, uh, but then it turns out that those are not the companies that I want to work for anyway. Um, anything that you learn at school, especially in something like programming or uh, anything IT related, it's just a foundation. Anything else during your career, you need to learn yourself anyway. Um, so you, you, you're constantly learning new stuff, uh, mm-hmm. things that no school could have prepared you for, um, with some things like, uh, AI and, and artificial intelligence artificial intelligence, uh, neural networks and these type of things, having a more theoretical background might've helped, but we'll never know. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Um, and what was your what was your first job in software engineering
1: i worked uh, my my well so uh, since it's uh it's a quite a practical training that i had uh my first quote unquote job was as an intern at a uh a small company that created websites uh for other businesses basically um I could start there, but their offer was so ridiculously low that I said, no, thank you. And then I started working for a consultancy company, CSC, Um, and and in Holland, they're not as huge uh, as as in America, Um, but they they, they gave me a very good base to basically develop myself and continue learning and getting on bigger challenges every time.
0: And how did you make your way to Norway from Holland?
1: Um, by going to Sydney, um, <laughs> I, I, I have a cousin. My, my, my family is spread out all over the world, and um, one of my cousins lives in near, uh, yeah, what, near Hamilton. No, not oh. Hamilton. No, what is it called? The it doesn't matter. Um, in Australia. And he was getting married, and that seems like a really good opportunity to go to Australia. So I went there for about three weeks, one week for the wedding, and then two weeks for traveling. And during those travels, I met my wife. Um, We hooked up later again, uh, traveled back home from Australia. Uh, Sort of, that's how, uh, uh, yeah, and my wife, of course, being a Norwegian, that helps the story.
0: (laughs) And... um being part of the EU you could you could just move to Norway is that is that right there were no sort of barriers to that move
1: no no barriers it's as an IT person you can pretty much work wherever you want so as soon as you have a job you can move from the EU to Norway yeah. i don't know if it's easy if you don't have a job but uh, this 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 was easy for us
0: oh that's great I I see from just lurking on your LinkedIn profile that um you eventually it it looks to me like you you made a shift towards becoming more independent like a consultant in your career. Is that That
1: took uh, that took a while. I I've I've, had, I've done many things. I've uh, we've lived off several places. I mean, we lived three times in Norway, but three times in Holland. We lived in Germany, in uh, Spain and also in Australia. Oh, wow. And Uh, I've had jobs as consultant, I've been an in-house developer, Uh, I've been an agile coach in Germany, Um, and and so there's lots of stuff, lots of different roles that I've had, and now I am more, I'm running my own company together with my wife, which is small cousin, in order to basically pay our food and a roof over the head uh overheads i'm i'm renting myself out as a consultant as well yes
0: okay i asked partly because many of the the authors who come to lean pub are often sort of sort of have have similar profiles where they've moved in between sort of formal work and independent consulting and you so uh, before we talk about your current company um you co-founded something called snowflake ai yep Can you talk a little bit about that? It it sounds really interesting.
1: Uh, It's um, it's a platform that allows uh, companies to use any of their data to communicate with their customers. Uh, Most of these uh, platforms use uh, very simple um, keyword lists where you describe a customer by basically by flattening everything you know about that customer into a fixed keyword uh, key value list and then you can run rules against that. Um, but in together with my uh, friend and uh, at that time colleague, I was working at an insurance company. And they have a whole lot more data than you can fit in one of those yeah flattened lists. So we saw that as a problem and we decided that we wanted to try and build a solution for that. Uh, which means that... You could use the data in the form that you have it in your own company and use that data to communicate individually to individual customers so that you can pretty much form and shape the way you communicate based on what you know of that customer. Um,
0: and is the, is the communication meant to be a form of marketing or is it is it customer support?
1: Everything. Oh. Just so... Every, well, for one, everything you do is sort of marketing, even if you communicate directly to the customer uh, about some system, whatever the functions. Um, but but the, the, the idea was that we, when we started, we uh, had uh, documents in mind like PDFs, um, uh, emails, and, for example, SMS, uh, where you basically can create the communication whether it's a if it's an insurance document then you need a lot of data to put into that uh, template uh, but for an email there can be a lot less data and then whether that is an email that goes out uh, from the system to notify that customer of something or whether that is a marketing email there is not really that much of a difference there I mean you want to, when you send out a marketing email you also want to be very specific and if you already know things about that particular customer that can help you form and shape the content of that email then you're you're making it much more interesting for the customer, whereas a lot of the marketing right now is completely uninteresting to the customer
0: that's definitely the, that's definitely true um did you did you uh did you do fundraising for the startup
1: We tried. <laughs> So we, we, we learned a, a, a lot during this startup um, and mostly about what not to do. Um, we we built a product which was uh, amazing. Um, castle was first built on top of that uh, as well. Um, the thing is that we didn't go after customers quickly enough, and the customers that we were trying to get were way too big uh, because we were thinking they are the ones that really need it, uh, considering our background in the insurance company. Um, but they are also way too skeptical to go and, and work with a small uh, startup Um things start rolling like a snowball so if you don't get customers then or the customers that you get are not that impressive then it's harder to get funding whereas if we would have gone the more self-help route where any company could just sign up start using it and just get a lot of small customers i think that would have been a differentiator for us
0: oh that's very interesting so um i've I've done a little bit of work myself in the similar kind of area and so so what you you essentially sort of tried to do enterprise sales for your product yeah right
1: that's which in hindsight is completely idiotic uh, because enterprises uh, work with enterprises
0: (laughs) yeah it's it's really interesting because I mean the the prize is so attractive Um, And as you say, you know, the idea of if you can sign up one big customer, all of a sudden, you know, things can really get going because now you have this this reference point. But, you know, getting getting into a big enterprise is just so hard.
1: Yeah. And and, uh, so we've we've had meetings with the biggest bank of Norway and and many meetings. uh, But before you actually get them to to basically commit, it just takes way too long. So getting the in getting the in is not even at least in Norway wasn't even the biggest problem. But getting them to basically say yes, uh, here here's uh, a signature. <laughs> um,
0: yeah. Did you ever encounter? I mean, I, you know, I I can't go into detail, but you know, internal resistance from someone who may have had a, another service they were championing.
1: And um, yes, definitely. Yeah. uh so, so the, the, one other problem for us was that as as I mentioned in initially already is that we are not we are focused on transactional emails like the ones that you, here's your new password here, this happened in the system this is an update uh but we were also con- uh, considering a solution for marketing emails and even though technically they're very similar uh the people using them are very different. And the people using the marketing type uh, platforms, they are used to very different way of working versus uh, talking to the programmer that just wants to send out emails based on triggers and so on. Um, So we, we were successful on the technical side, which is not surprising because both of us were technical. Um, but we were not successful on the marketing side. So we had a, a smaller bank as a customer in, in Bergen. And uh, from the technical uh, people, we were doing our job uh, as, as they expected us and everything was fine. But getting the marketing team to transfer to our platform was um, seemed, was impossible basically.
0: Yeah. At least for us. Yeah, you have to. I know. I know where you're coming from. Uh, getting getting that kind of internal sign on uh, is just such. It's just so tricky for so many reasons. I mean, you know, what? Just one example is that you know you can have the kind of and there. I think there are sort of in in this world. You know, there are all kinds of profiles of the different types of people you might encounter. But one of them is someone who you know might be a lower level employee who is like, oh, yet yet another service I have to learn, and so they they might they might resist it cynically. Because, you know, they've had different sort of competitive executives pushing all kinds of products on them all the time. But then you might have someone else who really loves it, but just doesn't have the influence to get someone higher up to sign on.
1: Yeah, for sure. Yeah, for sure. Um, people have people, people don't change really easily. Uh, that's an experience that I uh, got very heads uh, on when I was doing the agile coaching part. <laughs>
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I've heard about. I've, I've interviewed a few uh, agile, agile co- people with experience agile coaching on this podcast before, and a number of them have expressed a similar a similar sentiment. And I'm I'm, I'm curious about how things. So I I see I see from your profile that uh, you worked on Snowflake for about three years. Did the underlying technology change a lot in that time that, that that was available to you to use to develop your product? I am asking because it's I mean one of the things it, it's it, it's a it's a big deal nowadays in sort of marketing and customer support world to do exactly what it sounds like you were trying to do because it lets you scale so dramatically when you can sort of automate your interactions with customers in in a complex way. Uh, did things change a lot in, in just even in the in the during the period of time when you were uh, Working on the product um,
1: for us, not not so much. To be honest, uh, we we started out uh, using Erlang in the backend uh, for our product, uh, mainly because we knew this was going to be a very. It, this was going to be a problem where we would need to be able to scale on different levels and erlang is is ideal uh, for that Um, we did change to elixir uh, which is basically a different language on top of the erlang vm um, because it it, the dialect is slightly easier for especially for people that are not used to working with erlang Uh, but other than that we haven't Changed much on uh, on the technology side. Uh, Frontend is going to be, of course, JavaScript. Uh, we started out with something and ended up with React uh, fairly quickly already, uh, which which was working fine for us.
0: Uh, one thing I wanted to ask you, just generally, as someone who's you know worked in the in the AI space at a pretty high level, uh, do you Have you been surprised at developments in AI in the last few years? Uh, You know, I I confess I'm one of those people who was totally shocked that, you know, I mean, I'm using AI loosely, but you know, that AI, you know, beat Go grandmasters as quickly as as it did.
1: (laughs) But to, to clarify one thing first, even though there was AI in the name of our company, we didn't actually use AI yet. That was something that we envisioned that would happen. Um, because of what we did, but initially uh, it was um, hand-built rules uh, that that made decisions. Um, I, I believe that AI will be doing this uh, soon. I also don't think. I think AI can do a lot. Uh, especially since computers are uh, uh, speeding up, everything is speeding up uh, and that that's what you need. And you need a lot of data and, and companies are also getting really, really good in collecting a lot of data. But I'm, I'm they're They're gonna be all still for a very long time, I think very specialized solutions, not solutions like uh, it's not gonna be like a life form that suddenly starts realizing stuff and doing things themselves. I think for a very long time, I think it's gonna be for an extremely long time still gonna be extremely specific solutions to specific problems, and they can be really smart, yes. If that makes
0: sense yeah no it no it totally does um I interviewed someone recently named Andrei Burkov who wrote a, a book um, called the the hundred page machine learning book and he, he he works in AI and he had this really interesting observation that um it's it's funny it's like the really complex stuff that that AI for for a, as you were saying you know that for some time and and generalized stuff that AI will not be very good at. But he said that particular, and he used it, it was a striking example from self-driving, like the kind of thing that you just do automatically when you're driving, like, whoa, swerve out of the way when something is suddenly in front of you. He's like, that's easy. It's, it's the, that sort of specific kind of like, something's coming at me, get out of the way. Uh, mm-hmm. But it's the, the much more generalized thing, of like, you know, sort of per, perhaps sort of getting from A to B efficiently that that's harder.
1: Yeah. Yeah, the- it's it's still it's still sort of from a very high level. I think it's it's you should still see those basic configuring rules. Only the configuration is a lot more complex. But as soon as it's learned something, then and that's the filter. Mm-hmm.
0: And so you've you've uh, got a new startup, cousin Can you talk a little bit about what the inspiration was for that? It sounds just like a really great idea.
1: <laughs> Thanks. Um, that, that started quite interestingly. Uh, so with Snowflake, in order to explain to people what we did, I very often use the example of a, a kid's store. So if a mom walks into the store and buys uh, clothing for a one-month-old baby boy, what should that store then do in in two months? They should send an offer for three-month uh, baby boy clothing, And the the more often that customer gets back to that same store, the more that store understands about the style and the wishes of that particular mom. So the offers can be more specified and specific for that particular mom. Right? So that's the, that's the premises of what Snowflake should be doing for that store owner eventually automatically. Um, My, my wife, uh, she loves uh, shopping for kids clothing uh, we have five kids ourselves as well so it's a good thing she likes it yeah. <laughs> um, and at some point uh, i just so with snowflake my uh friend partner he needed to get out he needed to get some stability in his life so i went uh from from having uh, at least a two people business business, we went to uh, just me and I was trying to keep that going for a while but it it's it was hard with two it was impossible with one and so at some point I realized I don't know um, so what if the example if instead of the software just offering these these particular things why why don't we take that whole chain and And ask people what they like. Uh, and then based on that profile, we will find clothing that matches the profile and send it to them. And my wife liked the idea as well. So we uh, built a nice website. I think that's important. the The website was really nice. Uh, but we had nothing else. And uh, we launched. Uh, had a few Facebook ads and got our first orders that same evening, and then we went uh, to regular stores, bought clothing based on the profiles that these people had given us. Given us, we put it into a mailer box and we sent it to them, and um, just to test whether or not this was something that people liked and we didn't get those boxes back people liked it Uh, we got more and more orders and we started putting stuff in place uh, in order to handle that Uh, putting in place like uh, deals with actually the brands the clothing brands um, um, other things like payment providers and everything basically everything that you need to properly have an online business, uh, we started building after testing whether or not this was something that, uh, people would want, um, it at the be- moment.
0: Yeah, just, sorry. It, it must've been very exciting to get those first, those first orders. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's such, I, I mean, I don't, I don't have kids myself, so it took me, it took me like a sort of moment to sort of realize what a great idea it is because children grow. <laughs> I'm I, I saying like that's like, that's how dumb I am, right? Uh, like, and it it, it is is as, as you describe, you know what? And it's so interesting to hear that it, it sort of emerged as a sort of example of a potential use case, and then became a real business. But it, it makes total sense that if like as children grow, predictably. They're going to need new new clothing um and then sort of you you could build a service behind that natural fact that would make life easier for parents and in in particular, I believe you the part of the pitch for to customers is that not only will you have someone making kind of tasteful and informed decisions about the clothing but that the the parent gets a surprise
1: yeah. Uh, definitely so when when we started we were in one of those incubators and uh, people were telling us people don't like that people want to be able to choose and see what they're getting uh, and um, our, our hypothesis was that that was not true um, and it turns out that the surprise element is is in, indeed very important in this in this uh this whole thing um so we have sometimes people that tell us, okay, I would like to know what I'm getting, and then we tell them, then you should go to a regular store because uh, that's not what we do. Um, and the major- the majority of people really enjoy basically getting a box, not knowing what it's, what's in it, and then discovering that they love it.
0: Yeah, that's a really cool idea. I mean, and then it becomes, it becomes an event, you know? Oh, the latest, the latest box.
1: Absolutely, uh, they, they they unpack it together with the kids, and uh, for those that have uh, slightly older kids, um, some some mention say it's like Christmas.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, it is like Christmas. And, 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 uh, and so I'm, I'm curious about the, um. I mean, there are all sorts of, there's, there's sort of like this sophisticated technology underneath it, but there's also a, at the same time, all these sort of practical issues running a business like that. So can people, I mean, I, I think I know the answer, but people can return the box items of clothing from the boxes to you and then you refund them?
1: Yes. So, so, like like how we started, we the whole journey has been experiment after experiment after experiment. Um, so initially, when we started, we told people that instead of uh, a refund, you uh, we can pick something else for you that you like. Um, so, so the funny thing is, when we started, we didn't do a good enough Google. But it turns out that we were definitely not the first. In in America, there are a few really big ones. Um, the a, a major difference between them and us, I think, is that we are going for the high-end market, whereas, whereas they're going for a much lower-end market. Um, so it's a different type of quality product. Uh, but but um, when we started, we just had this idea as, as that people – People want an X amount of clothing, and they're willing to spend an X amount of money for it. And if they don't like what we sent them, then they can send it back, and we then send something else back. Um, But then you get into things like, okay, so how are we going to do that with shipping? Are we going to so initially they pay for shipping back to us, and we pay them for for the return again. Um, So, but now we are at a place where we are paying uh, for the return shipping as well. And then it becomes too expensive to exchange clothing. So then we say to people, "Okay, you just keep what you love and return the rest to us, and then you get a refund for that money uh, for for the items that you return to us. Um, yeah,
0: and and the returned items can't be used. Is that no, 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 right, no. <laughs> right. So it's open so so it, so it's 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 sort of this. It's really interesting so you open the box and you know that like oh you know I just I don't like purple or something like that and then so you can return just the items that you you don't you don't love
1: yeah so so we we ask quite a few questions now uh, that has evolved a lot as well so we're asking about color preferences what type of clothing they want and whatnot um, so when in 2018 we had around now i have to think about let, let's say around 20 uh boxes where we got the whole box back and they wanted all of the money back and that was for around the uh, 1200 boxes sent out so we, we were quite uh, happy with that number yeah uh, of course a lot more people that uh, changed something but in general most people like what they're getting and they are uh, yeah. they're they're keeping everything um, but now we are moving also into uh, not just Norway, but Sweden, and Denmark, Germany, Holland, and Belgium. And there we wanted to offer a bit more security. Uh, and therefore, we also include free return shipping. And that kind of changes the model a little bit, uh, like I mentioned before, uh, for in, in not doing exchanges anymore, but just return the, the items to us. And, but this is also still an experiment. Uh, we may change that as well again.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. I, I thought I saw a map online with a sort of circle around a bunch of different different countries. And I didn't know that was a, an expansion. I thought that might have been the way it had been done the whole time. But that, that must be really interesting, dealing with, with new countries. And so do you... I'm I'm curious. Um, LeanPub reaches people all over the world. LeanPub books can be written in all kinds of languages. But we we use English exclusively for communicating with people. Have you had to change the language with which you communicate as you've expanded.
1: So when we started of course in Norway we had Norwegian as a main language and with the other countries we are also adding uh, individual languages there. Yes. I think I think with, with LeanPub you're talking about the more advanced uh, advanced maybe not is not the right word but you have you have more technical people for sure are using it and they're used to using english even if english is not their own language uh, but we are talking about moms uh, that are stressed with screaming kids and you don't want them to start thinking about what they're reading in english in order to sell them a box you want them to be as comfortable as easy, uh, as possible really mm-hmm. so i think i think uh, I think for us it is important to be in the native language, Um, and we do that with the website. We do that uh, as much as possible also with the emails, and the the main limitation is that we don't uh, possess the skills to translate these languages ourselves, so we're using a few moms for that. Oh. Uh, our, our, our philosophy is that we're helping moms, and one way of helping them is also giving them a little bit of extra work or money in that way. Uh, especially, uh, uh, yeah, people that don't want to have a full-time job but have a few hours here and there. So we uh, we extend that throughout basically everything where we can.
0: Oh, that's really interesting. That's really interesting. I've, I've got to say, one one of the big differences between between Leanpub and and your company is that, um, you know, we don't deal in physical goods, and so uh, at at the same time as as you point out correctly, you know, most of our most of our books are technical books, and so most of our authors are technical authors, and most of our readers are technical readers, and so they are familiar with English. But we, I have noticed that when it comes to communicating with people in languages that we're not familiar with, when it comes to very Detailed step-by-step things that people can do to resolve their own issues online. Online translation services have kind of revolutionized uh, how well we can communicate with people. So if it's if it's a matter of go to this part of the way, like if someone communicates with us in say Spanish asking for a refund, we we can, we can so, use online translation services pretty pretty well to communicate to them like go to this page, click this button. Then you'll get your refund. But if it were much more if it were more complicated about a matter of like you know physical goods and returning, I don't think they would be up to the level that, that you need.
1: No, and also I think a main difference here is that if so when we speak to German people or, or French people, then I'm using the uh, translation services as well. But then then it's me as a person talking to another person and their expectation of how that uh, communication goes is a lot lower than when they actually go to a website where they can read the website in their own language. And and for that, these translation services are not nearly good enough, nowhere near good enough, to be honest. So if I take an English text and I translate that using any of these uh, that I've used uh, into German, uh, then even I can see that that not that's not everything is perfect. And then when I give it to a German person, uh, they will go and change a lot. Uh, and I think so. So one of the things that we need to do with our customers is build trust. Right? That's the biggest thing. I mean, that's important for every business, really. Mm-hmm. But. What what we are doing is we're just basically telling them, okay, give us your money, tell us what you like and we'll find something and then we'll give it to you as a surprise. You don't know what you're getting. So that that there requires an additional level of trust uh, as well. And, and the prices are also not uh, very cheap. I mean, the the, the smallest box starts at um, 150 euro. I don't know what that is in US at the moment, but um and and it goes up to uh, 500 euro so there are there are big bigger ticket items um and when you build in trust you don't want to show a website where you can clearly see that is done by google translate then then at that point i think it's better to go for english
0: you're you're reminding me um of uh, there was a period early on in lean pubs existence when we were a little bit uh shall we say kind of cowboy in our in our approach to to that and so we wanted we wanted um to be able to internationalize book landing pages so that if a book was in, written in, um, you know, say Japanese, then the sort of instructions on the page would be Japanese. And we actually, it was partly because we knew our, our main customers. We, we have customers who are both readers and customers who are authors who love writing and they mm-hmm. were technical people. So we actually did do Google Translate knowing that people would go, this is totally wrong. And then we set up a GitHub repo so they could correct it themselves. Um, and, and that's that's how we internationalized limpa. Uh, it, it, it worked because I mean, for, but, but only in our very specific case where um, you know our half, you know, sort of half of our customers are writers themselves, and everyone's technical. So when 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 someone like that sees what we've done, they it's kind of, if you know what I mean, like they kind of knew what they were looking at. Like oh, look, like it's a bootstrap yeah. startup. That's you know.
1: Yeah, yeah, I, I think it's perfectly fine in in that case. Definitely, um, I, and, and and so. Partly, we do that as well, meaning that we're using our own customers to translate, not, not just because we feel that uh, that fits within, within our, our motto, but also because they are our target audience. So the language that they speak comes much closer to than when we would, for example, use a translation agency. If we're getting a 50-year-old guy translating our stuff, then that may work perfectly fine, but there's also a really, really big chan- uh, chance that that person does not speak the language that 30-year-old girls uh, or women are speaking.
0: <laughs> right, right. Yeah, of course. So, yeah. 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 Um, moving on uh, to the next yeah. part of the interview. Uh, a few years ago, you wrote, some, you wrote a couple of books on LeanPub. Um, if you, if I wanted to ask you about the uh, CQRS book. Um, yeah. What was the origin of that book?
1: The origin is really uh, Greg Young, um, who was uh, or is uh, one of the main um, inventors behind uh, the S pattern. And he was staying in in Bergen for for several uh, days. I think a few weeks even when he was doing uh, he was doing consulting work and other stuff. And we we were chatting about this uh, S framework. And, and how it worked. And based on that, I started writing a few blog posts. And um, those blog posts became more and more content. And uh, also more and more people started, uh, started reading them. Uh, so what I did then uh, was I was being lazy. And I converted those blog posts into uh, what is now the, the CRS book. I I tried to to change the wording enough uh, but I think you you can still see that it originated from a blog. Um, And it's made a lot of people happy, I think. Uh, It still does, actually. uh, Still, uh, people buy it. And I also give it away to anybody that asks for a free one. Um,
0: I actually wanted to ask you about that specifically in a, in a couple of minutes, but um, just just, yeah. <laughs> just before I do that, um, so so CQRS stands for command and query responsibility segregation. Could you could you explain it just in a couple? I mean, there, I'll, I'll link online to there's actually a really great great video where you explain everything in, in detail very generously. But um, uh, if you could talk a little bit about what command and query responsibility segregation is and what what Greg Young's sort of innovation on that was
1: now i'm going to get calls from him telling me that i'm completely wrong of course but (laughs) so the 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 main thing is is that you have different problem spaces right so you have uh, you if we start from the simplest cases you want to show data on a screen or you want to use data uh, for a particular use case then you want that retrieval of that data to be as easy as possible. You want uh, to not have to join 20 different tables in order to show a, an overview of some some information to a user, especially not if that happens a lot of the times, right? So you want to have a specific data model for that specific use case that you wanna you wanna display the data, and then you've got. Another use case is where you're you're migra- um, changing data. You want to uh, update certain things, uh, but you don't like. It's not like a CRUD app where you just have a table. You make a change to that table, and and that's it. A one-to-one relationship with really the data that you change and the, and the storage of it. But you have a you have logic, you have a, a data a business logic that makes certain decisions based on certain actions or certain data entry points from, from the user. And based on that business logic, stuff may happen, stuff may change. Uh, data you, you, you get, um, you, you get it, um, yeah, uh, but how you call it? Logic happens. And, and again, there you want to be as specific as possible to uh, the actual problem that is being solved. Now, these two are then not matching anymore, right? So the way you read the data and quickly uh, show it, it does not match the way that the data is being used when the business logic needs it. And in order to basically migrate from these between these two points, you you start uh, using events. So the business logic triggers an event which then can update um, one to X data stores for reading uh, so that you optimize uh, for each individual use case. I hope that makes sense.
0: Uh, Yeah, it it does make some sense. And uh, when you talk about business logic, that reminds me about that part of the inspiration for this was domain-driven design.
1: Yes, yeah.
0: And that the idea is is partly that um, you want that, that there's there's sort of there sort of ought to be a kind of deep connection between the way the business actually functions and the way the software functions.
1: If it does, it makes a lot of things a lot easier. Yes, uh, reasoning is one uh, big thing that makes it easier. So if, if your if your business, the way that the business works, if that can be translated roughly in how the code works, and in, let's talk about events, in the type of events that that code then generates, if they are, if they are understandable by the business uh, people themselves then you can reason between the business the, the conversation between the business people and the developers becomes a lot easier if they are speaking the same type of language so.
0: yeah it's it's interesting it's 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 a really deep deep idea one of the things that i find so fascinating about it is that you know i think, I think for sort of normal non-technical people um and i'm 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 one of those myself people often assume that you know The way a business would work is that there'd be the sort of people in suits who then sort of just tell the programmers, you know, go make it work. And this is the way that, unfortunately, many companies have operated uh, for a long time. But one, there's been this kind of revolution in understanding that, you know, actually there's a logic to the business and there's a logic the software and that if those can match not only are there all sorts of sort of efficiencies that come from that but it gives you a shared language for talking about what you're doing which has always been this sort of notorious problem where the the sort of tech guys and the and the executives can't talk to each other
1: yeah yeah no, not, not just them i think i think uh, communication is 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 probably the biggest problem uh, that the world knows um right so <laughs> But but yeah for sure so so lots and lots of projects are wrong and so there's there's different things right so you can if you communicate wrongly then it's not surprisingly that the software that you get is not what you really wanted another problem is of course that you uh, you tell something then you go away for three four months and then you get together again and then suddenly you you realize that it doesn't work that that's another major issue of course for for lots of companies Um, the uh, by speeding up releases and being able to communicate more often in a language that you both share you are you increasing your chances of success a lot
0: yeah yeah definitely Uh, and it's 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 so it's so important when you know software is eating the world and, and every business is becoming a software business or sort of has to be in order to compete
1: uh, mm-hmm.
0: uh moving on to the the last part of the interview um uh so a few years ago you decided to to write write a couple of books and you decided to use Leanpub as your platform do you recall what what the reason was that you chose Leanpub as the platform for your books
1: it was easy at the time uh, definitely easy i think it still is easy but uh, that was one of the main uh, choices uh you c- I think it was with Dropbox at that point that I uh, connected and you write in plain text uh, with markup language and uh, you uh, save the files and then you generate a, a really nice looking PDF. Uh, in, in a, in a,
0: uh, yeah. Well, th- thanks for saying that. We, we like hearing from people that, that they find it easy because not everybody does, but for some people it's, uh, it just sort of, it just fits and makes sense.
1: I, I'm a technical person, so for me it was definitely easy. Um, and also, I think they've discontinued it uh, not too long ago. But uh, that you generate um, the, the the PDF that Amazon could use uh, to create the Kindle and also a written uh, a, a physical book, uh, these type of things. I think it made. It made the book accessible in multiple platforms, and if it wasn't that easy, I wouldn't have done it.
0: Oh, that's definitely. Are you saying Amazon discontinued something?
1: Uh, The Clear Space or something? Oh, oh, I think.
0: Yeah, they so they used to have a different brand called Create Space, and they Create Space, yeah. they, They merged it into um. Oh, what's it called? KDP.
1: Right, uh, your Kindle digital publishing, I think, is what it yeah, stands yeah.
0: For. yeah, yeah. So you can still so so basically, you can still do what you did, but you have to use a different sort of service within Amazon in order to do it. Um, right. So that that's interesting. So it was it was just that easy for you to get your book up in sort of print on demand in Kindle on Amazon. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. That's great. So that's always nice to hear. Um, uh, and so uh, you mentioned uh, you say this on your Leanpub page, and you also say it on the uh, Amazon page for the book that you know if if someone can't afford the book, you'll give it to them for free. Have you had have you had people ask you for free copies?
1: Yeah, quite regularly. Uh, it's it's uh, okay. becoming less, but uh, for sure. I, I I don't know. You guys can probably see this, but I don't know how many I've given away for free. Uh, but it wouldn't surprise me if it was half. Um, and any so so the reason for doing this uh, has never been to make a lot of money. I don't think uh, I should have been writing a lot better books than, uh, <laughs> but but to share to share the information and um, the money that I'm getting from Leanpub, I've always been using uh, during vacation time um as, as you know I've been saving up so I, I don't get my monthly royalty checks from you guys I just ask you can you now transfer the money what is there uh but with that sharing also means that if people can't afford it uh then they can just tell me and they'll get a free copy
0: yeah it's it, it's very generous and also um at the same time one thing that we've learned over the years and and this you know in the self publishing world there's huge sort of you know debates and theories about the the value and purpose of of giving away free copies but one thing we've noticed particularly because we have a variable pricing model so you can actually set the minimum price of your book to free but then you know set a suggested price for some dollar amount you know so our, our best-selling books uh by revenue have free minimum prices
1: right yeah um,
0: and, and it's, i didn't
1: know that actually oh really? i mean oh, yeah. that yeah. i did i did not know that i could could do that yeah. uh, so yeah.
0: I, I mean, but, but we I'll, I'll, well, I mean, you could, you could, but I mean, you know, actually there, there are a number of lean pub authors who have a similar uh, model to yours, which is, you know, a paid minimum and a paid suggested price, but also, uh, off say, look, but if you can't afford it, we'll give it away to you for free. And I think that's, that's partly because, um, so many lean pub books are nonfiction and they're created in order to teach people something. And, and so, although everyone likes money, uh, that's as the gold joke goes, that's why they call it money. Um, you know, people People who write conventional sort of LeanPub books are also trying to uh, spread information and help people. And so being able to spread that information is their main motivation for doing the work they've done in the first place. And so uh, being able to give it away for free, which you can do very easily on LeanPub using coupons, um, giving people coupon links, is is a very attractive proposition. Yeah, I I, I 100% agree.
1: Uh, My my, my reasoning is, okay, so... (laughs) If if you can afford it and you the it's uh, and the information is useful, then you probably earn a lot more than the than the book has cost oh. uh, with with the with the new information. So for them, I think oh, you can just pay. I I don't like the tendency, especially among developers, where they say I don't want to pay for the, for a tool, but then they go and what do they do? They build tools, right? Um, that, that that that's a bit of silly reasoning in my in my mind. Uh, But for people that can't afford it uh, or or students or or people in different countries where, where the minimum amount is still a lot of money, then, yeah, sure, you can have it for free because, yeah, why not?
0: yeah no that's that's interesting you say that that's exactly the kind of um reasoning that we suggest people use when they're i mean pricing is hard as you know uh, from your company <laughs> and, and um that's exactly the reasoning that we sort of suggest people think about when they're pricing their books because you know it the difference between say a sort of genre fiction book and non-fiction technical book is that a non-fiction technical book can actually get you a promotion or help you build something that you couldn't have built otherwise and you know if you're a consultant and you can as a result of what you've learned bill yourself out at a higher rate the value of a book to you is um quite a bit greater than it would be if it were you know not not to disparage entertainment but you know if something is is there for entertainment you it enriches your life but it doesn't Fatten your your wallet, um, whereas certain types of nonfiction books actually can do that.
1: Exactly, and, and with, with the CKS book, there is actually even a complete uh, repository 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 with um, working code, uh, and the book describes the working code. So if you want, you can just use that repository as a quick start for getting something up and running, like a proof of concept to show people how it works. And then you can move on and build your actual proper implementation. I think the, the, the money that you save by being able to do that uh, should be worth uh, whatever the price would be.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. Um and uh so uh the last question I always like to ask people on this podcast is I don't know if it's entirely appropriate in your case because you've got five kids and you've got a, a, a business that you're working on, and so I don't know if you're going to be writing another lean pup book anytime soon. Um, but I do I do always like to ask people if there's one thing you can think of that we could build for you or one thing we could fix for you, is there anything that you can think of? <laughs>
1: I'm really happy with what you guys are doing, uh, so so I have no no uh, immediate wishes in that respect as to writing something new. I I like the uh, the aspect of writing, uh, but it just does, does take a lot of time. I'm I'm currently doing a lot of other type of writing uh, like uh, sales pages. I have I'm reading books that are like 20 years older than I am, and. I think once I get more proficient in that, it would be fun to write something about copywriting um for 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 people like me, people that don't have that background and, and didn't start in that way. I think it's really interesting, especially like reading a book from nineteen, whatever. Um 19, 20 or something and and that these type of things still work in the human mind and I think a lot of people that build a startup and and look at other startups and how they present their pages and stuff like that, they just have no clue and I think as as a technical person myself uh, if I could write something like that and help other people understand that there's a better way of communicating towards your your potential customers and that would be a fun project to do
0: that sounds yeah. like a really great project but not yet <laughs> <laughs> fair, enough, fair enough well thank, thank you very much mark for taking the time out of your evening uh to talk to me and to to all of our listeners um
1: uh, thanks for having me
0: yeah thank you very much and uh, best wishes with with the with the business it just sounds amazing
1: Th- thanks you guys, you guys as well keep going
0: okay thank you And as always, thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of the Front Matter Podcast. If you like what you heard, please rate and review it wherever you found it. iTunes is particularly helpful for us. And if you'd like to be a LeanPub author yourself, please go to LeanPub.com. Thanks.